Hello everyone, welcome to this bonus episode of World Building Vermasicus, which we recorded live at ArmadilloCon, which was the first time the three of us were in the same room together, and it was very exciting. But as a live recording, it's it's got a uh, trifle bit of chaos on it, as you might expect. We had a great time doing it, but it was in a big wide room with echoey walls, other ArmadilloCon events nearby that you can probably hear some shouting and applause from, and at some point an ice machine behind us. But still, we had a wonderful time, and it was a glorious crowd who in gave us great questions to work with, and we wanted to share it all with you. So hopefully you will enjoy this live episode, and we'll see you soon with a regular episode next week. Enjoy! Before we start, you're getting the behind-the-scenes look now. That was how the magic happened. How we start every, usually after five to ten minutes, or, or half an hour, <laughs> of us chattering aimlessly at each other, and then being like, oh, right, we should right. probably record a podcast and, and now. And we won't do that thing where after we hit record, we just keep talking. <laughs> Definitely not. And have to stop and go back, and, and let's, let's, let's have go a for live it. episode. All right. You're here for live world-building for masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because it's ArmadilloCon, and this is how we celebrate. Woo! Woo! This is where we would pause for the intro music. I can't play the intro music <laughs> oh, and record at, at the, the same, same time. time. Oh, <laughs> bummer. So we will just dive right in. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us um, today. Um, we so, are all super excited to be here. Yes, um, and it's our first ever first like episode. live studio audience. I mean, we're not like sending it live, but we're recording it with other humans really? in the space with us, and with us in the same space. Yeah, we've never done before either. This weekend is the first time the three of us have been in the same space yes. ever, physically in the same zip code. Yeah, even yeah, yeah. So that's, that's <laughs> or time zone, or you know. Yeah, I think may have all been in the same. time. No. Briefly, briefly, when you guys were in D.C. and I was stuck in Indiana. Oh, there we go. Technically yeah, true. There we go. There we go. Oh, how nice. <laughs> Memories. <laughs> well, um, I thought we would start off with a little bit of who we are and what we do, because some of you may be joining us for the first time, and welcome. Thank you so much. So we enjoy world building till it hurts, um, but we like it, too. So I thought I would start with the question that we always ask our guests, which is, what do you love about world building? We should probably let these people know who we are. Oh, you want to do that? We should probably okay. do that, because some of these people might not you know, know who we are. are. You're right. Every episode is a new episode for people to yes. discover. For someone. True. For someone. True. Anyway, I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I live here in Austin, Texas. I'm a fantasy author who is absurdly detailed about world building. I have written now 16 distinct works within uh, the world of Meridane, most of which is the, the first phase of the Meridane saga, which starts with the Thorn of Denton Hill and wraps up with People of the City. And then I've written another novel set in the world of Meridane, which is an unintended Voyage, where I send one of my secondary characters on a surprise kidnapping and ends up on the other side of the world and has to figure out her way to get back home. I like that you say surprise kidnapping as opposed to an anticipated <laughs> kidnapping. 
some, some people make a plan. <laughs> um, my most recent thing, which is set in the world of Meriday, but is also in another city, is this lovely novella that I just released this weekend, which is The Mystical Murders of Yinmara, in which two academics love each other and love science and find dead bodies that are too fascinating to ignore. As one does. As one does. I'm Cass Morris. I write The Oven Cycle, uh, From Unseen Fire and Giveaway Tonight are out now, and I'm working on editing book three at the moment. They are historical fantasy set in an alternate version of ancient Rome, because I am a huge classics geek, I'm a huge history geek in general. Uh, the next thing I'm sort of, yeah, right? I know, wild. Um, I have a background in Shakespeare studies as well, and the next project I'm working on is sort of heavily influenced by that and by that world, so I'm, I'm bringing in um, my academic background as well as my love of world building and the things I've learned on this podcast. I, yeah, I just, I love doing this all so much. It's so much fun. I'll go into that more later. Um, I uh, also work for a mythology-themed summer camp, which is another really great way to just learn so much more about different cultures and their mythologies and their worldviews and the things that create the stories in different people's minds. Um, and I love digging into all that. And yeah, it's fun. That's why I do it. And I'm Rowena Miller, um, also a fantasy author, believe it or not. Um, the author of the Unraveled Kingdom trilogy, which is set in a second world inspired by the Age of Revolution um, and follows a seamstress through um, trial, terror, all kinds of, of crazy stuff. Um, and uh, the forthcoming Fairy Bargains of Prospect Hill out of March of 2023. Um, God willing, in the creek don't rise, because who knows anymore, right? Who knows? Um, who knows? Probably <laughs> um, So I, when I'm not writing, I am a part-time English professor and um, goat herder and chicken wrangler. Um, and so is my daughter, who is also a, a goat herder and chicken wrangler. Um, I enjoy um, history stuff. I sew a lot of historical clothing, and that has been a fun time doing some panels with uh, fine folks here at ArmadilloCon about yeah. sewing and all kinds of stuff. So that is us. Now and, why we love world building? And no. yes, and I think people may have a sense of why we love world building <laughs> from your intros, but like, what, what, what do you love? What do you get into? What sparks your interest when building a world? I love looking at how people like create their sense of self and how they build communities and the way, all the different structures that can take. Um, because I love history so much, I study the different ways people have been. Like, how do we form a people? How do we form a nation? How do we form a religious community? And I like taking those and respinning them. Being like, what happens if, if this, but then it developed a different way? What happened if Rome, but magic? And how does that touch the law and the religion and the economy and, and playing with those dominoes that you like just flick over one thing and then see what else falls is, is so much fun to me. It's just a giant game in my brain of how these things can all fit together. I also was a kid who really loved her dollhouse and I like building my own giant dollhouses and filling them with characters who just then collide into each other and, and that's, that's just what I think is fun, is just building the world and then populating it with, with just all kinds of fun humans because I, I really like humans. I mean, we do some crappy things, but we do some pretty awesome things too. So my, my general optimism we on the human right. race. Like, <laughs> always interesting. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> certainly, certainly always interesting. Um, I like seeing how humans collide with each other and relate to each other. Yeah, I mean, very similarly, I love, I love 
that the the process of just digging in and, and doing that sort of like, what if I do this and twist it this way? What if I do? But also, I love thinking about like all those next level implications, and then certainly over the course of doing the show for three plus years now. Amazing I, has opened up my brain even more to, to what those questions even can be, because like one of the big ethos that we've talked about on the show is is choose versus presume. Whether you are making active choices about what your world is, or just making presumptions of like that's what epic fantasy looks like, and I, I don't I don't even have to to go past that. And it's always going to be so much more interesting when you make active choices even if those choices look very similar to yeah. that sort of like classic Ren Fair with the serial numbers filed off epic fantasy if you get there in a way that you interrogated why you got there then you're going to have something more interesting and I love doing that and I love then applying these things I mean I have learned so much doing the show with y'all and like I, I put, so much. Yeah, and, I put, and from our guests, And too. from our yeah, guests, too. Our, guests our brilliant, amazing, incredible guests that we have had the privilege of talking to yeah. over the course of the show. Um, and so much of that, like, I took, when I wrote um, Velocity of Revolution, which is a completely different kind of secondary world fantasy, that it's set in a diesel punk world that's sort of reminiscent of, like, Mexico in the 1940s, but, like, but not, and <laughs> and so many of the things I did was me doing that incredibly detailed level of active interrogation of mm. why did I make this choice? Why am I not making another choice? And following through with what that could mean culturally and and spiritually and, and, <laughs> and intellectually, and 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 that work was so much more the stronger because of what the what the elements of this show brought to that. I want to embroider the words choose, don't presume on something and hang it like over my desk because yes. it is like, it's so our motto. And we were talking and we did the writing workshop, Marshall and I did, and one of the conversations we had with that group was like, even if you are replicating things in our world, and it was specifically in the context of, sorry Nora, of sexist bullshit. Um, <laughs> if your world has sexist bullshit, there is still a reason for that. It's not just because the way it is. Like somebody made choices to instill this society with sexism. And you can still choose that because I think there are still a lot of things worth interrogating in fiction about like how those systems come to be and how they are upheld and who enforces them. Those are things worth investigating in fiction, but you don't want to just sort of replicate it because, oh, that's the way things were or still are. <laughs> Making the active more that's interesting choice. Were. Yeah. Um, <laughs> gives you so much more juice and it will give you so many more character hooks and plot hooks to dig into. And that's where writing is fun and that's where it gets fun for your readers as well. If they don't, like, from the minute they open the book know exactly how this story of sexist bullshit is going to progress, like, yeah, it's, it's more fun for the reader and I think more fun for the writer. Absolutely. And I love how we've hit already just, you know, <laughs> both of you, two of our major ethos, which is choose, don't presume. And Cassie kind of touched on, too, just the idea of, like, dominoes falling, that you make one change to a world and everything's affected. And I think that might be one of my favorite things about world building is just the interconnectedness of it, that every piece of a world touches other parts of the world. And so I love kind of just 
almost like one of those mind maps that you made in elementary school where you have like a thought bubble and there's like bubbles coming off of it and connecting to other bubbles. Like I feel like that's kind of how my brain goes when I start to imagine a new world or a new corner of a world that I've already been building or a facet of a world that I haven't fleshed out yet is what, what is it touching and, and what pieces of the world are connecting and affecting each other. Um, and just kind of that, that connection, I think, helps to develop a richness to the world. Because what I love about reading worlds that other people have written is when I can tell that there is so much richness underneath. And even if a little bit just makes it to the page and I don't see like their world-building Bible where they have everything laid out in excruciating detail, I can sense that it is a well-rounded world. It's not just um, a set piece. You know, it's not just a painted board that, that it ends where the scene ends. I love when you can read a world that feels like it goes on forever and that every person in that world could have a story. And I think that that's so fun as a reader because then you can kind of imagine yourself in that world and say, what would my story be in this world? So I love worlds that are just like flushed out and rich and, and I, I aim to write for that. I don't know if I succeed all the time, <laughs> but I really aim for that because it's so much fun, I think, also as a writer, to imagine yourself playing in your own world beyond just the story that, that you're writing. It's genuinely the thing that made me want to be a storyteller was, and for me it was Star Wars. That was the first thing that I sort of saw that like, the original Star Wars movie, like there's so many characters and there's clearly so many worlds and so many people that have their own whole stories, even if only a sliver of it ends up on the screen. Like, you know, those dudes in the cantina, one of them gets his arm lopped off. Like they've got a whole, st like they are the heroes of their own story, even though they're clearly, you know, terrible sentient beings. But like, they've got their own story and this is just one bad day for them <laughs> in the middle of everything else. Like, I love that. And like you said, any world I can imagine myself in is, is more interesting to me than one that feels so closed off. And I want to, yeah, I too want to give that to other, other people. Indeed. So here's a question, um, which we've gone over on the podcast before, but since we may have new people, and it's always fun to talk about, we all have really different world-building styles. And I like to emphasize that because I think that sometimes when people start thinking about world-building, you tend to think like, well, there is, there is like one way to go about doing it. You have to build a complete world as though you are building like a world-building Bible. Um, there need to be certain kinds of tools that you have to use, and we're all really different. Um, so to, to just kind of illustrate that, I wonder if we could each kind of talk about what our high points of how we world-build are and what they look like. You're all looking at me because yeah, you, know you know I'm going to say spreadsheet, spreadsheet, spreadsheet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I am a, I'm a big fan of just getting all of my information together in spreadsheety ways because that then gives me access to the information I need in, in some easily sortable way or another. And and I like, and again, to, to, to fulfill the four masochist ethos, ethos, I love having information that I'm never gonna need in case I might need it. So like, <laughs> like in the Meridian world, I have spreadsheets of everything about the geography, so I have like, it's got, it's got over a thousand cities in the spreadsheet throughout the world. If you've, I mean, they can attest because they've at least seen the map on the Zoom calls that I have mounted behind me in my office. That is, I mean, it's a map that started out as just a pencil drawing of continents in 1993, and every time I've gotten like a new level of computer that can handle more detail without exploding. <laughs> I've been like, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna pump up to the next level of detail. And then 
And then add, I'm like, okay, I will now add more detail to the regions. I'm going to add more cities. I'm going to do even more and make it as rich and thorough and lived in as I possibly can. And to do that, I need, I need to know more stuff about what else is where. And so, but then I also have to keep track of it. Because if you just make a map <laughs> filled with city names, and then you're like, oh, I forgot to write that down elsewhere, then you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> um, but like, also, I will do things like... Okay, this is specifically when I wrote this novella. There's a bit in the beginning where Phaedra and Gianna are just, they go out into, into a clearing to have a romantic walk in the starlight and look up at the stars and be like, oh, look, that planet's in that constellation. And I went, okay, on that day, what planet would be in what constellation? And stopped dead <laughs> and did an entire spreadsheet of... The planets in the sky and and the the you know the constellations that are on the elliptical and what's and did the math of what would be where what like I literally went onto uh, one writer's group and I'm just like hey does anybody here happen to know equations for for uh, orbital geometry <laughs> and somebody's like yes here's the equation I'm like thank you sir you are the best oh, <laughs> and, and God's for the internet yes the internet is is a blessing and a curse <laughs> but and so now I have a spreadsheet where I can put in any date with it and I have a spreadsheet about calendars too on the calendar <laughs> and get exactly what what phase of the moon of the moons are and where every planet is in the sky and thus know that and I then had to like tweak that so that plot points for later down the line which I have planned things are exactly in the sky where I want them to be. <laughs> Rather than just saying they are, because that's what a normal human would do. <laughs> it's like being prepared to the next level. Yeah. Just in case. Just in case. Might need this again. Safety blanket world building. Yeah. I might need that. I tend to start with an aesthetic. I tend to start with sort of what the world's going to look and feel like, both in terms of like technology level and the visuals. What are the people wearing? This is where you and I are very similar. Yes. <laughs> um, so is it, you know, is it the ancient Rome? Is it early modern London? Is it 10th century Byzantium? Is it a combination of a few of those things often too? Um, I begin from there and then figure out, okay, how did the world get to be that? How did the world get to be shaped like this? I start sketching out maps. For, for the Alvin cycle, I cheated and used the real world map. Um, but for the other projects, I, I like sketching out maps. I think they're fun. I think maps are, are cool. Maps I like cartography. So, um, so playing with that, figuring out where the cities are. And then I tend to start building my world and my characters sort of in conjunction with each other. I build them. I build the dollhouse and the dolls that go in it at the same time. And I usually start off with like way more characters that then end up actually serving the plot because as I'm building the world, I'm thinking about what kinds of people are in it. You know, Who are the key religious figures? Who are the heads of the merchants' guilds? Um, and so it's helping me to world build to think of these characters and these figures and these people. What's their education level? How did they get to the station society? Is it an elected position or an inherited one or a bought one, things like that? That answers questions for me about the world as I'm building it because it tells me what their economy is like and what their government's like and what the structure is like 
So those two things tend to happen simultaneously for me. Um, I do not keep very good series Bibles or spreadsheets. I tend to keep it all in my chaos Muppet little head, um, which was very frustrating for my copy editor <laughs> the first time around. She's like, wait a minute, I need help tracking all these places. And I was like, oh, right, I should make a chart for you. That would be helpful, wouldn't it? Um, I tend to sort of have a giant info dump document for myself, which is where I sort of track everything in just a bullet list form. As, as thoughts occur to me, they get flung at this page, and then they live there, and if I ever need to find something, I just go to that document and control F it and find what I need. It's probably not a great system, uh, but it's how my brain works. Um, I also, I do a lot of visuals as well. I do a lot of, um, you know, creating the Pinterest board to get with that aesthetic. There used to be so many good like online dolly makers, but when Flash died, so did most of those sites. And it's very upsetting to me because I liked being able to create costumes and wardrobes for my characters. And I'm not a very good artist, so drawing them myself is not optimal. Um, Pit, crew can, yeah, no. Pit crew can kind of serve the purpose, but it's not as good as the old Flash ones, and I'm very upset about that still. Um, but I need that too. I need that, that visual scope of the world, not just the hard data. I need to know what does it look like? What do the rooms look like in your typical house? What do the streets look like? Um, so finding in art, in photos, in reconstructions, um, doing Rome was great because there are so many reconstructed you know, villas and there's the, the sets from HBO's Rome that ha were photographed in immaculate detail. And I'm like, yep, I'm just stealing all of these and <laughs> making my own little, little um, you know, vision board with them. Um, that's where a lot of it happens too. So sort of building what it looks like, what it feels like for the characters and then backing up a little bit and asking, okay, why and how? How did it get to have this shape? And, and what do the people in the world think about, think about their own world? What do they think about the, the shape that it now has? Yeah, I think that Cass and I are similar in that I, I also do not spreadsheet. Um, and I um, tend to the, the world and the characters and the story are all kind of happening, percolating together at the same time. Um, I think we joked before, Marshall has to get the sandbox in order before the, the figurines go into the sandbox exactly. and things begin to be, you know, stories happen in the sandbox and I, I, the sandbox is a mess and I'm throwing sand all over the place and, and putting things and trying, trying them out to see how they work. Um, but I, yeah, I, I like to kind of start with, with what is the world going to feel like? What is it going to evoke in the reader? Like what images are, are you going to have when you're reading it? Um, and what works for the story that I'm trying to tell? Like in some ways that the world is very much part of a story. So what kind of a story is coming out of this world and how do I want them to play nicely together? Um, and one thing that I love um, in that stage is research. And I think that sometimes research gets this wrap of you're trying to get like historical facts to percolate the world with the facts that are correct. But it's a second world, so it's, it's not going to be an exact replica of any particular place or time. I want to know how stuff works. I want to know, you know, if I'm, if I'm devising a map, I'm going to put a city somewhere. Well, why is that city there? Okay, so how did cities in a similar terrain to what I am trying to create, how do they develop? Like, why, why would you put a city in this place? And over time, would a city actually, like, stay there? Or would, because, you know, trains are coming in and replacing a lot of boat travel, is the city actually going to develop in a different direction? Like, these are the kinds of things I want to know. How does it work? How does it function if people are agricultural societies? Okay, well, how does that work? What does their growing season look like? How does that function? So for me, research is getting to learn geeky things that I've kind of always wanted to know anyway. 
um, but I have an excuse now to like go to the library and check out 20 books and this is why I, I will always try to work at a university in one way or another so I have my JSTOR access <laughs> and I can get my tab bases and I can get what I need and I can binge my David Attenborough documentaries so I know what the biome should look like and what animals might live there and how they interact with their environment because I'm really interested in that element of how do things interact, right? And so like how do, how do, how do different animals interact with the environment and how do humans come in and interact with those biomes in positive or negative ways. Like how do you how do you adapt yourself or adapt your environment? So I kind of that's that that's what I geek on. But those are such critical things to geek on though. I think that's that is I think the mistake a lot of people make is they think, oh I need to do things for historical accuracy. And historical accuracy is not the important thing in secondary world fantasy, but that your city is not bullshit. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think too, it's like when we talk about ac like historical accuracy or authenticity, what, what I'm worried about is is does the world internally consistent? Right. Is it internally authentic to that world? And knowing how things have actually worked in the real world can help you to develop that sense of, okay, does this work or is this no, this would never work. That's a terrible idea. No one would do that. Because I think we've also all seen in fantasy worlds that sort of like, here's a thing that's trying to exist on like rule of cool, but yeah. if you if you poke, pierce, it a if you poke it a little, you're like, okay, yes, cool. City on the top of a mile high mesa in the middle of a desert. Cool, but how do how, they eat? How do they eat? <laughs> how do they get water? What do what do they do with their waste products? Yeah. Like, do they just throw <laughs> it off the side of the mesa? And, and I will say that that is one of those moments when you can say, "But magic comes yeah. in," and that's the other fun thing about when you're world building in second world fantasy. You can have but, but magic. magic, and then you get to throw that monkey wrench in there. And as soon as you answer one question with magic, man, it starts causing so many others. You have raised like fifteen other questions, and so that ends up being a very fun. I love that it often creates as many problems as it solves. <laughs> But it's also like, I was just thinking, like, there are also things, examples in our real world where somebody tries to design a system that ends up not working. You know, the little, like, fake towns that they're like, this will be perfect, everyone will love it. And it's like, no one actually wants to move there. I just like thinking about things like that, too. Like, yeah. where in your society has someone tried something that did not work? Like, oh, we thought this would be a great place for a trading post. Turns out it's not because of the dust storms that keep rolling through or something like that. It's often knowing not just your history, but knowing sociology you know like knowing why history has happened the way it's happened why why we human the way we human absolutely and i think we wanted to leave a lot of time yes for audience questions so if no one's opposed let's go for it let's, let's for dive it. in for any audience questions that we have and if no one asks one we will call on you <laughs> <laughs> they are teachers or we'll just this true we are yes, yes. questions. I'm going to repeat that for our recording, um, which is, in case anyone didn't hear in the audience, which was, um, how deep do we go with character development? How do we kind of develop characters? How do we think about, is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it, you know, how do we develop that? Um, did I capture that question fairly correctly? Okay. Okay. And to make this into a world building question rather than necessarily a writing craft question, um, one of the things I think about a lot is generational change and generational trauma. Um, yeah. Because um, I, 
I also love to do, of course, like the full timeline, but I think it is important to sort of, when you're building like a group of characters who live in a place, you know, at a certain time, it's important to know what did they grow up through? Mm-hmm. And then what did the people who raised them grow up through? And as reductionist as it is to be like, oh, boomers are this, and Gen X is this, and millennials is this, that is actually a really good tool in terms of, like, the people who grew up in this period of time have a certain degree of similar experiences together, and then the people who grew up 15 years before have a different similar experience together, and those are going to shape those characters in certain ways. So if you understand what a your character's grandparents went through and how that shaped how they were then raised and also what they're going through or what they went through as a child, then you're going to have a better sense of who they are now and what choices they're going to make now. Absolutely. And I think, too, I mean, world building and character building are so closely linked because, I mean, like it or not, we are all, to some degree or another, a product of the environment that we live in, grew up in, engage with. And so, you know, thinking about an individual character, it can be a really, I think, useful tool to think about how would this character live, engage, interact, how would their personality come out in different environments. You know, so it's like I, I've got a character who, you know, has what I might consider to be innate personality traits to them. It's going to express very differently in different cultures at different times, things like that. What's, what are they, how are they raised, what is considered appropriate, inappropriate? Do they care? Are they the kind of character who is going to reflect their society or push against it? And to what degrees? And, and that balance can be fun to to play with and to, you know, I think to deepen your character development by asking how do they engage with the world and how does the world engage with them? Yeah, I think looking both at where they've come from, but also where they're going, where they think they're going, where they want to be going, how do they imagine their own future? Because that'll tell you a lot world building wise about like what opportunities are available to them. Um, Do they intend to follow the plan? The, the, the sequence of events that makes a proper life? Or are they like, I have no idea what's gonna happen next. I am striking out in some direction. I'm gonna take life as it comes. Do they think that they are boxed in by their society? Do they think that they, their society exists to give them opportunities, that they are the main character, whether they are or not, um, of your actual story? Do they think they're the main character of their world and that everything serves, to, like, you can get such a great idea of who a character is, what drives them, to make choices by what they think of their role in their society. Are they pushing against it? Are they going with the flow? Are they charting a new path? That to me says so much about their personality. And that comes from both knowing how they were raised and then the expectations they have for their future. Is it bleak or is it exciting? Is it full of opportunity or is it dismal? And then your plot hooks can come from challenging that expectation in one way or another. Um, Having a a sudden change that affects what they think their future is going to look like. Um, it's a lot of sort of, yeah, where I, where I think about characters and how deep I go, because that was sort of part of your question, um, depends on who the character is, how crucial they're going to be to my plot. And, and, you know, central figures get much more detailed, you know, biographies <laughs> than some of the side characters. Although some of the side characters end up just being so interesting to me that sort of like you were saying earlier, it's like I may write even more for them than I'm actually going to need just in case. 
just in case I need them more later on, just in case I want to do a spin-off novella or something. Um, who knows? Random example. But sure. Random example. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so many. Oh, oh yeah. My goodness. Like, I'll start in the back in the peach shirt there, black mask. Yeah. Good question. So the question is, what do we think about the idea of go deep versus go wide? Um, do we treat all parts of the world equally, or is our attention more focused in certain areas? And this might depend personally on how the world build. I, I know that I, I focus on some areas more than others. I have a sense of the whole world, but I focus more deeply on the areas I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time in. Um, and to some degree, too, um, there's a, there is a danger there that when there is interaction with other parts of the world, I do want to have that part of the world fleshed out independently and to some degree objectively, because I know that when I'm writing from the perspective of, say, my point of view characters who are from a different part of the world, I don't want their view of the other part of the world to completely dominate what I believe about that world. <laughs> my characters, they have to take like, a mind of their own of all their own prejudices and dragging me down with them, no. Um, so it's... It's somewhat pragmatic for me in that way that I don't necessarily do the depth that I do for like my point of view area across the whole world, but I do have a pretty good sketch of the basics for all the things. The world doesn't end where the storyline ends. My instinct is usually to go deep on things like politics and government first, because that's the kind of plots that interest me. Um, but then, as I become a magpie, as I flesh things out and get cool ideas, I tend to then go deep on whatever has my attention at that particular moment in time. It's a danger. It is a danger. Um, and there are some things I have to be pushed on a little more. Um, economic things. I don't have a great economic brain, so I have to sometimes have editors pushing me to like define more clearly some of the economic structures. Um, and writing military things, I keep writing things with wars in them, which is really dumb of me because I find military things harder to flesh out. <laughs> um, so there's some things where it's like naturally I want to go as deep as I can. Some things that happens incidentally as the thing occurs to me, it's like, oh, suddenly I need to know all about um, red currants and where they came from and what, they, what recipes they were used in because I found one thing and I needed it for one sentence and got off on a, you know, a weirdly deep hole all of a sudden. <laughs> and some things... Well, we found some recipes to try, though. Yeah, yeah was, I think, like, scones with red currants are supposed to be really good. Um, and some things I have to be pushed on, so it just sort of depends. Yeah, I think the... Going deep in the things that you're going to want to have your story focus on, be it the, the elements of story or be it the location where the story is mostly taking place. I mean, have a good, strong broad brushstrokes of what the rest of the world is like, I mean, you can do that in ways that are hopefully not reductive, but or but a good strong gauge of that, and then focus deeply on where you're actually telling your story, unless your story is, in fact, bouncing all over the world, because they have magical gates if you can yeah. jump down <laughs> the sides of the world in, that, that would as a random that, example. That, that, hypothetically. Um, Hypothetical random example. Um, and, and part of that too is is the pragmatic question of when do you stop world building? Because yeah. you could go on forever. And you know what? If that's what you enjoy doing and you never intend to write a story about it, go nuts, have fun. 
But at some point, if you are going to write a, a plot or character-driven story, you have, to, you have to divert your attention. So part of it is a pragmatic question. Okay, I've got enough. I really need to, to I have a plot out. now. I should, yeah. I, should, I should write the book. I should write an actual plot, not yeah. just have concepts crashing into each other. I think I saw the um, cast in the front. You had your hand up next. Yeah, what is the craziest world-building thing you, choice you've seen someone make or you've made yourself, and did it work? Okay, so craziest world-building choice either made ourselves or by someone else, and it worked. Um, or did it? Or did it work? I mean, did or didn't work. I'm gonna I say mean, there were a lot of things about mushrooms in Velocity of Revolution <laughs> <laughs> that totally worked, that were absolutely wild. So I'm I'm pointing the finger at him. I appreciate you, Cass. Uh, I was gonna say the world-building choice that has now taken over the world that we're building oh on air over the course of the show. God, which I is the MNG, which is <laughs> the magical nude gate, <laughs> which is that throughout, popularly throughout this world, this was because every time we have a wonderful, brilliant guest author, we say, "Give us something to put in the world." And when we had the brilliant Kate Elliott, Kate Elliott yep. that ended up being these gates that are throughout the world that when you, you know, that you can walk through them and pop to somewhere else in the world, and there is like a network, like Subway. We have to work out the details still. But when, and you can basically teleport to the other side of the world, but it follows the same rules as time travel in the Terminator, in that you come out on the other side with nothing. You cannot Naked. carry anything. So therefore... Nothing, nothing except anything alive. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, you can bring your pet parrot with you, but you can't Not a suitcase. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no pants. And so thus it became the magical and it, game. It just, it opened up so many then corollary questions about the world, and, and, and we won't go too deep on it right now, but it's something that we are excitedly exploring in more depth and hoping perhaps to create an anthology for. Yes. That's, that's a, a long-term goal. Not that long. Not that long. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a great example of one idea that was just kind of wild to begin with that is now structuring our entire Yeah, Once we start to think of like what the implications of it was, we're like, like God, this that is, affects everything. This is world-defining yes. kind of world-building. Because... And, and you know, I think that that, in some ways, is the does-it-work question, because the wilder the idea, the more likely it is affecting everything else in the world and becomes a tentpole of the world. So I think, as I'm, I, I'm not, I don't want to pick on any that didn't work because I don't know, I'm feeling really nice today. But I feel like some of the, the ideas I've seen that didn't work as well, it was because it was so radical and different and unique and it didn't change enough other things in the world. Mm. You know, and so it's, it's like, that's really cool and wow, that would affect every other facet of the world in ways that, that don't quite happen. So I think that's... Though, though, for one that I think does work, this is an example from um, Stephen Bruce's Jarek, where magic is so ubiquitous, including resurrection magic. So that, like, you can, like, you know, resurrection is a thing you can get at the corner store. So therefore, it has changed the culture in the sense that assassination is a way to just tell somebody, hey, buddy, stop it. <laughs> It's a mild inconvenience. It, it, it is just like, it is the equivalent of a smack on the wrist. <laughs> like, ah, oh, I got murdered again. <laughs> Fourth time this week. And, and I'm really getting somebody mad. Yes. Um, how do you address, how do you address what I call the teenage boy problem? Where, or teenager problem, let's say that. Where you have this really cool magic system, but if it's too easy, your world turns into the Betty Hill show? 
So the question is, how do you essentially structure your magical system? Um, because of course, if you have magic, you could very quickly, as you said, turn into the Benny Hill show, where it's like all over the place chaos. So how do you structure a magical system so that it is open enough that you're doing stuff with it, but not total chaos at the same time? Did I capture the essence of that question? But, but I also think there's a specificity that if like a 15-year-old boy can do magic, yes. he is going to make some bad choices with that yes. magic. In, in our household, we call those years the stupid years. Yes. Approximately 15 to 25, they are the yeah. stupid years. Yeah. There, there's going to be some, like, to, to, to put it politely, 80s movies shenanigans <laughs> that are crimes. <laughs> Every, yeah, and if every, every teenager, well, and that's and that's one question: is does everyone in your world have this ability? Um, whether it's innate or has to be taught, or is a blessing from the gods, or is something you can purchase? Like, a that's a that's one inherent world building question, right? How common is the magic? Can everyone do it, or is there some boundary on who can? Whether that is natural or artificially imposed or whatever, that's going to give you other world building questions to answer. Um, that limits you know, the Benny Hill quality. And then I think also giving it cost. Mag if magic yeah. costs something, whether from, from your body, from your spirit, actual coinage, that also imposes limitations. But like say, say you're writing a magic school type thing, you know, but like the, those, they, those impositions can be from society, can be from the law, that if teenage boys do things that are crimes, then there are, is a, a system in place is like, that was a crime, young man, and you're going to have to have a consequence for that. I have long wanted to write a, like a magical school story from the perspective of the teachers <laughs> and just the absolute nonsense they would have to deal with. You tried to enlarge what? <laughs> you didn't read the side effects on that spell? Really? Okay, well, you know what? I'm gonna let you sit with that for an hour while I whip up this potion, and you can think about your choices. Natural consequences. Yeah. Like I think I think that would be like I can't make I haven't made an actual plot out of it, but in my head it's a very funny idea. <laughs> it could be flash. Just, I think that it, just thinking about what what are the limits, what are the costs, and I think also it's something very embracing that some people are gonna do stupid crap even with the limits. So even if you have very strict limits. We can think on something in our own world. We have very strict limits, on, not that strict, but on cars and driving. Okay. You need to be licensed. You have to be able to purchase a car. You're supposed to purchase insurance for your car. How many of us in the last week have seen someone do something stupid? Yeah. <laughs> so I think to some degree, you know, accepting that there will always be teenage boys and teenage boys at heart who are going to do, you know, something stupid with it. And how do you deal with that in a world? How do you, how do you... Make sure it's not a world-ending thing. Like does something <laughs> stupid with the magic. I think that's a good question. Um, I'll say for Brad, did you start another apocalypse? <laughs> so I think we have another question um, in the blue shirt. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned like you know at some point with your world building, you do have to stop and write the story. How do you draw that line? Like how do you know? Okay, this is enough world. Find your plot. And like, I find out. She's just calling us out here. <laughs> when do we decide to draw the line and 
get off world building and start writing. Or um, I'll amend the question to slightly, if you are a concurrent builder, plotter, character developer, how do you decide to shut yourself up on the world building and, and get back to writing if that is maybe what you need to be doing? I'm not always good at it. I'll, I'll, I'll answer that question honestly. Yeah. It does, and it does change when you become published and suddenly there are expectations of when your next, whether they are contractual or just the looming terror of if I don't put out a book you know, within a span of time, everyone will forget about me and I will die forgotten in a corner. That's not reality, but that's at least what your brain will start, if you have my brain, it will start telling you. So once you're published, you start getting those fears and things looming over you to eventually tell you to stop you know, playing around and actually get down to tax. Um, but I think if I remove that from the equation, it becomes something of like, when does it, it feel like the dollhouse is furnished enough that a story can take place inside of it? Um, when have I done enough work that now the story needs, needs to, to have its own space? Um, and it goes back and forth. It's not a linear prog progress it's process either. You know, if I get stuck on the plot, might I go play with my world building some more in the hopes that it will trigger something in my head and inspire me? Yeah. Let me tell you, having something on deadline <laughs> is a brilliant way for the part of my brain to be like, instead, why don't we work on the map again? <laughs> <laughs> Version 18.7. Like, yes, that's that's a better use of my time writing a book <laughs> that is due next month. <laughs> I will say for me as a, a chronic researcher, and um, I because I, I I like doing it, it's fun. If I am in the process of drafting, like that is that is the part of writing I am doing, I don't let myself. I make a note, you know, I, I use the little comment bubble in Word to put a note there and say, look this up later. Um, and I do. And, and part of that is how you choose to work and what, what works best for you. For me, when I'm drafting, I have to sit down and write. I need to have like a couple hour block and like sit down and do it. But looking something up, I can do that another time. I can like, while I am, this sounds dangerous, while I'm cooking dinner, I can be on my phone and something <laughs> up. Um, so I, part of it is what is the time management that works well for you and figuring that out. And for me, it's bookmarking things because if I let myself rabbit hole every time I have a question. I will never get anything. Never anything done. Get fun. I'm fun at a question. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, how do you handle uh, various aspects of your world building that would go unappreciated or even totally unwitnessed in stories? So how do we handle elements of the world building that might go um, unnoticed or unappreciated in the story itself, correct? As in all, all you've, you've done all this beautiful work that you know you have to keep below in the part of the iceberg that is below the surface. And there is that, there is that thing in your heart that just wants to go, no, I have done all this work, let me show it all to you. Like, and, but if you put it in the book, then it becomes, I have done my homework, it's your turn now, and you don't want to do that. And that is what websites and errata is for. I was gonna say, that's why I have a Patreon. <laughs> you, you, can, you can be like, look at this cool other stuff I did to the people who are going who to care. geek out about that. Who do that. care, yeah. Because there are people who basically read fantasy books who sort of want the RPG manual version yeah. of that, but, and, but that's, a small sliver of your audience, but you can have that information for them in ways that they can access it when they want it, 
that don't inconvenience the people who would care less about that. Yes. Um, and until, as we were discussing on our Discord, um, which by the way, we have a Discord channel. If you enjoy these kinds of conversations and want to talk with other folks, please join us. Until book publishers support a format where <laughs> you can just click through to additional content um, and put that stuff in, like you know, an ebook that you get to click through. Uh, yeah, a lot of us pull it somewhere else. Have a Patreon, have a web, put it on our website, do newsletters, blog, Twitter threads about geeky stuff that we found. So. Um, more reason to follow authors that you enjoy on their social media or other platforms um, because it's often there if you enjoy that. Um, and if you go there, you can interact with us in a way that doesn't involve the toxicity of Twitter. This is true. <laughs> uh, yes. So, uh, how do you weigh your world building? Are you coming to something where it's like you just don't know how to make everything look good? What are some methods you can use to sort of get yourself out of that and get through so you can actually get to a point where you can write a story? Okay, so when, when you hit a world-building wall and you're stumped and you don't know how to make it work, what are strategies to, to untangle those knots? I use research. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I was just looking up things about the subject, it might have answered the question that I had because that might not exist in this world, but it might give me insight into how the thing works or how people have solved similar problems or um, set me off on a different tack. So just as reading about things or getting getting outside my own head a little bit and seeing what, what else exists in, in our world can can inspire me to, to untangle the knot in a certain way. Sometimes it's about unmaking a choice or making a choice a different way. Um, the project I'm working on now, an early draft, I'd made a world building choice that I thought was really cool and interesting, but it was not meshing with the character dynamic I wanted them to be able to have. And it was about like uh, social status and, and relationships within those things. And it's like, these two things do not fit together. So what's more important to me, the cool world building thing or this character dynamic? And in this case, the choice was the character dynamic. It might not always be that choice. Sometimes it might be, no, I really want to play inside this kind of world, so I have to change the characters to fit that. Um, but looking at that and just seeing like, you know what, this is my world. I can always unmake a choice that I've made. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, the, the, the kill your darling yeah. aspect of it is probably, yeah. could be the way to go. Not necessarily, like, I'm not one to be prescriptive about that little piece of advice, but another thing you can do is maybe, like, if it's a world-building thing that you think has got you in a snarl, then, like, try and write five, ten thousand words and see where that snarl takes you, and then that might unlock the O. Yeah. Now, now I understand why this is a snarl, mm -hmm. and what, and then what the prescription of that might be. Whether you need to research it more, or yank it out, or what have you. And sometimes there are opportunities. I mean, it, it might feel like it's a dead end, but it may be an opportunity to push your characters in a different direction, or, or explore something new. Do we have time for one more question? I think we do. One more. One more. Yes. From the perspective of having written an entire series. Uh, it's a good question um, especially from the perspective of writing a whole series um, you're gonna be writing more than just one story how do you avoid um, writing yourself into a corner with the world building where you are maybe fine for the beginning of book one but you really get in trouble later to like, capture the essence of that question okay 
I don't know the consequences of my own actions. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know if I have any good advice. Because I mean, because... Um, <laughs> except that it may happen. It may happen. It may happen. <laughs> I mean, there, you'll be the thing of like, oh, I call it this cool magic thing that is like the great thing for this thing in this book, and then like, oh no, the unrealized applications of this then make the plot of... The plot of book yeah. two completely pointless. Yeah. And, and well, and it, it helps when you know you're planning a series, um, and just from the kind of the way that publishing often works, we're often writing a book that can be standalone or can be series. So I would say, you know, if you have an eye toward publication, keeping that in mind when writing a book that's standalone, that you might get an offer that's actually we want this to be a series, and making sure that if that's something you'd be interested in that you are leaving avenues open for yourself and thinking about how would I take this in other directions. Um, I know for me, part of it was um, that I got to go visit other parts of the world that I hadn't gotten to visit in book one, so I really did get to like have fresh new experiences in book two and book three because they were moving into different places. So that's always an opportunity, the places that you haven't gone as deep later books in the series allow you to go deep on and the ways in which you've already, um, you can see it as written, writing yourself into corners, but you can also see it as giving yourself creative limitations that are gonna force you know, creative decision making to happen and creative solutions to how are people going to function in these, these circumstances and you know, so, so again, opportunities um, arise even from the snarls in the corners. Yeah, turn it into a plot hook if you have to. Like, oh, I've, I've hit this thing that's a snarl. No, my characters hit this thing that's a snarl and now they have to figure it out. And of course you also have to figure it out. But you can sort of, you can make a, a seeming incongruity or obstacle into a plot hook. Yeah, I agree. Are we out of time? I think we are. I know. We are at our time. Which is a bummer. This was so much fun. This is so, thank you so much. Thank you all thank so much you. for being here. And yeah. Find us, find us on Twitter and Discord and, and keep the conversation going because clearly we love to talk about this stuff. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books they write, all that information can be found at our website at worldbuildingforbasicus.podbean.com. And with that, <laughs> we bid you a good rest. I record the outro every week. <laughs> Therefore, it is embedded in the brain. I'm going to hit stop.